you got your Bibles, let's go to Romans chapter 7, of course, where we've been. And for sake of time, I am not going to rehash over verse 1 through 6. But we did say Romans 7 deals, a main theme as a whole, deals with the struggle, the struggle with sin. And key verses being verse 12 and 13, which I'm not going to read right now because we're about to read them as we go through this um, second half of all this. And so we're, we're going to try to get through, uh, we got 1 to 6 last uh, week. We're going to try to get through 7 to 25 tonight. Don't laugh too loud, all right? May God bless all of you snickering individuals. But um, looking here, and uh, we're, we're just going to we're going to jump right on in uh, for time. Okay, so we're, we're I, what I want to do is um, well let, let, let's just jump in verse seven and verse eight, and then I'll explain verse ver, well the the last part of verse eight all the way through the end um, is where I'm going to kind of I'm gonna gonna kind of shift our typical viewpoint. And get us to where I believe we can understand why Paul says things the way he says them in the latter half of chapter 7. It'll make a lot more sense when you, when you come at the statements made with the right viewpoint. Uh, when you don't have that, this viewpoint that I'm going to show you tonight, it becomes very confusing. But uh, let, let, me, let me show you um, verse number 7 and, verse, and, and the verse, first part of verse number 8. Uh, deals with the understanding the law and sin. Now, now the first six verses we're dealing with being released from the law, and, and uh, the analogy given in the Jewish law, and and, and the, the it's kind of like a parable to a degree, use, using the understanding of their everyday operations and and kind of speaking a parable, but but saying you're you know at, as a lost person. To a, to a degree, you're kind of married to sin. You're, you're, you're bound to sin through that. But through death, dying to it, it dying to you, you dying to it, it has now released you from that bond and you are free to now be joined with and married to Christ. And which opens a, the, the opportunity and ability to no longer be, be bound and responsible to sin, but now you can be bound by choice and responsible to Christ. And to righteousness. And, and so he does all of that, trying to bring things into an understanding from Jewish law standpoint to the very knowledgeable and learned individuals of that day. So he's, he's speaking to intellectuals, and so he's trying to use intellectual process to get them to understand. So now he goes into, in, in verse number 7, in the first part of verse number 8, uh, the second part of the breakdown is understanding the law and sin. And, and so after going through all of this, talking about being free from the law, you've been released from the law, you're no longer bound to the law, and how the law and sin correlate together to a degree, he now comes with a question in verse number seven. He says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, you know, with all that we're talking about, so you've been bound to the law and bound to sin. So is the law equal to being, is it sin? And so he comes and he says, well, God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. And then just the first part of, uh, of, of verse number eight, it says, but sin taking occasion 
by the commandment or sin doing what sin does by what was even described through the law. That's what he's saying. Sin taking occasion or just being what it is as described by the law. Sin taking occasion um, uh, by, by the commandment wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. And so he, he's saying the sin that, that I was bound to. It's not that the law is sin. The law of God is not sin. It, it, we'll go on in just a minute. We'll see some more um, examples of this. But, but he's trying to di- di- differentiate, yet at the same time, trying to give the understanding of how the law and how sin together, how they work to be revealed. And, and, and just give you this. Uh, so the question is, is the law sin? We know the answer simply is, well, no, absolutely not. So as a whole, what Paul is trying to describe here is the law, it's not sin. The law reveals the existence of sin. And the law teaches the understanding of sinfulness. The law itself is not the sin. It is the revealer of sin. And it is the understanding of what sinfulness in the life of a person is. And so the law as a whole, when in these the, the eyes and minds of, of these the educational group of that day, in Paul and the way he's teaching, they're like, so you're saying the law is equal to sin? He's like, no, no, the law reveals it. The law uh, places a magnifying glass on it. You cannot avoid knowing what sin is when you know the law. And so he's trying to teach them and show them it's not a negative thing to know the law. And you're going to understand in a minute why he had to do that before he goes into the next statements. But, uh, but in the first part of verse, uh, verse 8, um, you know, the, the question when did come up, well, did the law, if the law is not sin, so the law created sin. Well, no, the law didn't create sin. It says, but sin that already existed taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. The law, didn't, the law is not sin, and the law did not create the sin. The law just reveals it. The law is just showing it. Sin does what sin does, and the law tells me what it is and why it does what it does. The law reveals to me why it's such a problem. The law shows me why sin is exceeding sinful. Why it's so horrible. And so the law is not sin. The law does not create sin. And and here's basically what he lays out in that first part of of verse number 8. He lays out the law prescribes what sin already is in its existence. It doesn't create it. It just prescribes what it is. And the working of sin just proves the law to be true. I can, if you look down with me to verse number 12 and verse number 16, he kind of reiterates that, that fact of that the law, uh, it, it, I should say the working of sin just proves the law true. Look at verse number 12. So skip down a little bit. Verse number 12 says, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. So here he's backing up. Is the law sin? No, the law is holy. The commandments, just and good. Uh, So did the law create sin? No, the law is holy 
and the commandment holy and just and good. If you go down to verse number 16, he says this, if then I do that, which I would not. In other words, I do those things according to the sinful nature, which I should not do. Therefore, let me put it simply, if I choose to sin, He says in the last part of verse number 16, I consent unto the law that it is good. When I examine my life and I see the choices I've made, every time I chose to give in to sin, I just prove the law true. Sin exists. Sin destroys. Sin causes guilt. And sin brings about punishment And every time I choose to do that, I'm just proving the law true and holy and just. Why? Because it's not sinful. The law is not sinful. He's dealing with the law of Moses. He's dealing with the laws that the the children of Israel would follow and and hold as as the the high standard of what we all have to live by. And, And yet he's trying to get them to understand the law can't save you. The law is not the answer for eternity. The law is not going to fix the sin problem. That's not what it's there for. Well, if the law is not any good for that, then it must be bad. No. The law reveals to us and the law exemplifies how sinful we are. Oh, so the, the law is sin. No, it's not. Well, then the law created the sin. No, it didn't. The law just prescribes and shows you what sin is and shows you how sinfulness works. And every time you give in to sin, you prove it true. That's what he's saying. So understanding how the law works in coordination with knowing what sin is. Now, All of that's important. Why? Because he's about to give a a very descriptive understanding of what it's like for a lost person to start experiencing conviction for the first time. Now, here's where you got to make sure that your understanding is, is shifted in the right direction, and you gotta, you got to come at the verse number, the last part of verse number 8, all the way through verse number 25. you got to come at these verses with a proper viewpoint and mindset, or it becomes very confusing, and people can use it to teach lots of different crazy stuff out there. Uh, but they, well, see, you see, you can lose your salvation. Hold on, it doesn't teach that. Oh, 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 you see, you can't help but just, you're going to have to sin. You got to sin. You got to sin's just too strong. It doesn't teach that. Okay, so what is it, what is it really teaching? What is Paul saying in these last verses? And here's where it really gets good. Okay, so what, this is the, the last section out of, there's three sections here. The release from the law, understanding the law and sin, and then what the knowledge of sin does. The law gives us the knowledge to understand sin. It teaches us. So what does the knowledge of sin accomplish? What does it do? We see that in the last part of chapter 7. So to understand these last few verses, you got to come with with this viewpoint, okay? So first understanding the struggle 
for the lost and for the believer. Okay, there's a struggle for the lost and believer. Paul reveals through these last verses the struggle that he faced as a lost man. Paul is about to give a personal testimony of what took place leading to salvation for himself. All right? So if you grab a hold of that, you're going to see this all in a whole different light. But at the same time, you also have to understand that Paul, not very, not directly, but Paul does allude to struggling in the flesh, even as a believer in Jesus Christ after salvation. He does give the, the understanding, or he leads into what, in, in chapter 8, you'll see more of. But he le- begins to lead into the understanding that even as a child of God, the battle between the spirit and the flesh is still present. We are to be the new man. And the old man is to pass away. The old man is to be done away with. However, this flesh, we still dwell in. And when he, when, when he talks about his members, he's talking about this, the fleshly body and all that, what, that, what the hands can, put their, can, can get a hold of and where the, where the feet want to go and, and all these, these things about our fleshly body. He's saying that all, all my members, the fleshly side, does have a continual fight. And you find out consistently as you continue reading through what Paul teaches in Romans and other places that he, he does teach consistently that there is a regular fight. It's normal even for the child of God to have a daily battle that we must die to the flesh, that we might live unto God because we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God in, in, in everything that we do, in, 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 in this body, in our spirit. We're to glorify God in both. But there's no way to glorify God and do what we're supposed to do if I'm letting the fleshly side of me have more control over my daily life than the spirit that now lives within me. Before salvation, the spirit inside is dead. It has no ability to rise up. It has no ability to fight. We are a slave to sin. We are a slave to the flesh. And there's nothing there to get us out of it until the moment that an individual receives Christ as their Savior. Now that which was dead on the inside has now been brought to life. And all of a sudden, when somebody gets saved, people are like, oh, I thought I got, I got saved. Everything was just going to be hunky-dory. It's not. You know why? Because before you were saved, there was no internal battle going on. But once you got saved, the spirit within you revived, but it's still clothed in this flesh. And so there is still the work of God on the inner man being trying to be choked out by the outer man that's supposed to be dead. The sin is still very active, but we're not bound to it. We surrender to it if we choose to. We're not bound to the sin. I am now free to to be bound with Christ. And by the way, how do I overcome those sinful things in my life? Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So when the spirit has been revived, now I have the source of victory 
in the inner man. And as long as I go to the source for victory, I can control the fleshly shell that I am clothed in. I can control the fleshly desires that sin would love to tempt and sin would love to distract. I can, through God's help and the grace of God through it all in Jesus Christ, I can be victorious over daily temptation. But for a lost person, that's not possible. Why? Because that source is not there. So with that understanding, knowing that, yes, the believer can struggle with having to still make the choice to give all to God or to surrender in moments here and there on battlefields to the fleshly lust of, of, of this body and of this life and of sin. And so we still have that battle. But understand as a whole, when you look at the full context of what Paul's dealing with, he is dealing with the intellectuals. As he is now coming into trying to help them understand the usefulness and the power of the teaching of the law. And then he says, best way, I'm going to give you in a paraphrased way. Best way I can help you understand it is to tell you my personal story. So, let's read what he says concerning his struggle. Verse number 8, the very last part of verse number 8 says, for without the law, sin was dead. It's going to make sense in, in just a minute. Verse number 10, and uh, the commandment which was ordained to life, that's the law. How, how do I know how, how to live right? I got, if, I, if I could live by the law, I would be pleasing God. So it's a commandment ordained unto life. But he said that commandment that was ordained um, the, where is it at? I lost, oh, the commandment was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Now, he, again, makes it sound like the law is a bad thing. He's making it sound like the law that they've been hoping in is horrible, it's bad, it's awful. It, it's supposed to be unto life, and to, to me it was death. But I'm going to explain what he's talking about in just a second. He said, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy. We read, read that one a minute ago. The commandment holy and just and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid. Oh, no, 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 I thought he just said that, that, that the law was like death to him. He, well, now he's saying it's not. Keep watching. Hold on. It says, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now, I'm going to stop right there. And I want, to, I want you to, to, to try to grasp this with me as we wrap up this, this chapter. He's dealing with the process and the power of conviction. Initially, and here's, here's the last part of verse number 8 and verse number 9. Initially, he was free from guilt, I should say free from a guilty conscience, yet still condemned. What he said in the last part of verse number 8 and, and, and verse number 9, said, for without the law, sin was dead. What he's saying is, before I understood the law, what does the law do? The law teaches me what sin is. The law teaches me how sin is exceeding sinful. The law helps me understand 
that doing the things I've been doing displeased God. Before knowing that, there's no problem. Before knowing that, it, it, it didn't bother me. It didn't cause any issues. When, when I didn't, now here's the thing. I had no guilty conscience over the way I was living my life. Because I didn't have anything to, tell, to show me different. Before the law entered, hey, it just knows. Uh, as he said, uh, for without the law, sin was dead. In other words, it, it's no big deal. Sin's not a problem. Sin's no, what's sin? I don't know what sin is. You understand, when you, when you meet somebody who's never even heard these concepts, you, you ask them, what's sin? Some of them don't even know how to answer that. I don't know, you tell me. Sin is anything we do that displeases and goes against God's law. Where is that law found? Glad you asked. Let me show you some things. What, now, here's the thing. Once you've been shown and once you know what you know, you can't go back and unknow. Once you know it. All of a sudden, now, that which meant nothing and that which gave no guilt, all of a sudden, when conviction begins to set in, when understanding begins to set in, all of a sudden, it's like sin that was just dead. It's no big deal. It's, what's sin? That's nothing to me. Now, all of a sudden, it's something. And watch how he says it, okay? So it was dead, for I was alive without the law once. In other words, I was doing just fine. I was living just fine. I had no guilt. I had no issues. I had no, no conscience struggle in my, in my mind whatsoever because I didn't know any of this stuff. But when the, commandment came, when, the, when the commandment came, in other words, when I was taught and I learned and now I know from the law what sin is, sin revived and I died. All of a sudden, sin became obvious. And it started killing me. All of a sudden, I saw what sin was, and I could not see it. Now I go to do this, and all I can think is, well, I guess that's sin too. Go over here, well, I guess that's sin too. I guess it's, oh, this stuff's killing me. Okay? Can you understand what he's saying? When, when the commandment came, when the knowledge came, now all of a sudden, I was, I was completely oblivious to it. And then once it came, now I can't stop seeing it. And it's killing me. Now watch. You say, how do you know? Because he says it more than once. Verse number 10. And the commandment which was ordained to life. Is the law sin? Is the law bad? Is the law awful? Is the law death? No. The law is good. It's holy. It's right. It's just. And so it, it was ordained to life. It's supposed to help us and teach us. I found to be unto death. It's like this thing that's supposed to be so great and wonderful. It's killing me. I mean, it's just wearing me slap out. Now, everywhere I turn, death, turn, death, turn, death. <laughs> I'm hopeless. Okay, now, can you see? This is conviction beginning to set in. Because of the knowledge that he's receiving from truth, now conviction is setting in, and he's realizing, I can't even live life without feeling like I'm dying. Uh, it, it gets better. Okay, so we're going on. Uh, verse number 11, for sin taking occasion by the commandment, in other words, sin just doing what the law said sin does, 
The more that sin happened, the more I realized the law was true. The more sin happened, the more I realized the law was true. <laughs> and then I sinned again. I realized, oh, the law is even true in that area too. I can't win for losing. Sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it slew me. Now, before I knew what sin was and before I knew what sin caused and before I knew the end result of sin, it did not bother me whatsoever. But now that I'm aware of it, it is constantly, all the time, I'm seeing how I'm deceived, I'm deceived, I'm deceived. And it is just, it is slaying me moment after moment. And how do you know he's telling the testimony? Well, because he uses past tense in all these aspects. For I was alive without the law, but when commandment came, sin revived and I died. Uh, and it goes on, which, uh, the commandment which was ordained in the life I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it, it doesn't say, he doesn't say slays me. He said by it slew me. It just, every single day, I, it, just, it just hit me hard. It's hit me hard. I, I this stuff didn't bother me before. Now it just looks like it's destroying me left and right. We keep going. Wherefore the law is holy, the commandment holy, and just and good. So he's confirming <laughs> everything I'm doing now is just proving what I've, been, what I've been taught and what now I know. It's just proving it true time and time again. Uh, but um, verse... Um, so what we see is we see the initial, he was initially free from a guilty conscience, yet he was still condemned because even though he didn't know what sin was, doesn't mean that he wasn't guilty of it. It's the fact that he realizes what it is and how guilty he is. That is what begins to set conviction in. And, and then the moment that verse number nine, the last part of verse number nine is when the moment that sin became a reality. That's where he sin revived and I died immediately. Now, all of a sudden, I realize what sin is. It's a reality. I know what it is. I can't, I can't forget it now. Then the, verse, uh, the, the last part of verse 9 um, and, and into verse number 13, the result of conviction setting in. Verse number 13 says, was then that which is good. We read it a minute ago, but then that which is good made death to me, unto me. In other words, was that which is good, the law, what, was it bad for me? No, God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good. In other words, I saw the death that sin was working because the law taught me about it. That which is good taught me how death is killing me, I'm sorry, how sin is killing me. And so the death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding simple. Can you see what he's going through? Now, every single day, what used to not bother him at all, every day, it's getting worse and worse and worse, and it's eating him alive. It's now becoming exceeding sinful. And then the next area, verse number 14, is the first honest personal assessment that he gives in his testimony. For we know that the law is spiritual, so he's not doubting the law. He's saying, we know it's spiritual. We know it's of God. It's from God himself. But I am carnal, sold under sin. So now he's, he's pointing to the fact, is Paul, a Christian, still sold and bound under sin? No, no, no. He later teaches that 
when you get saved, when you receive Christ, you are set free, right? We've already seen that in Romans. And so he said back in that time, I was sold under sin. In that time, when I'm realizing how bad I am, I'm realizing that I am chained to this sin and I can't get the chains off no matter how much I tug and pull. It just, it it gets heavier and heavier and heavier and I am a slave. He said, I come to that realization and he does that, that first time of honest assessment and says, I am carnal and a slave to sin. Conviction setting in, truth being known. Verse, uh, verse number 15, 17, I gotta, I gotta hurry. The frustrating captivity of sin's control and guilt. Here's where he begins to stay, say these confusing things. But understand, he is ultimately speaking of his personal testimony what he was experiencing when he came to a realization that I am condemned. I cannot fix it by myself. Here, and so when you, you come at it with that understanding, now let's read verse 15 through 17. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. In other words, every time I sin, I prove it true, I prove it true, I prove it true. Now then, and here's where people get um, real off. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. People say, well, see, it's not my fault. Satan made me do it. It's not my fault. Sin made me do it. It's not like I wanted to, you know, just this flesh. I can't help it. See, people use it the wrong way, but what Paul's not using it as an excuse. What he's saying is in verse number 17, now then, understanding this, knowing what this is, knowing that I am a slave to sin, now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. What he's saying is, I thought I was in control of my life. I thought I was the one making my own decisions. I thought I was the one being the man of my life. And he said, I'm finding out now that I'm just a slave to sin. I'm not making any choices for myself. I'm not as big a guy as I thought I was. I'm not as as in control as I thought I was. I am influenced and controlled by this fleshly, lustful, sinful body and this sinful nature that I'm in. Now that I know what it is, now that I see what it is, I look at myself and I realize those things which I would do, I do not. And those things which I wouldn't do, that I do. And now all of a sudden I realize I'm not in control of me. Sin is ruling my life. Sin is the one that is the true king in my life. I'm not the king. It is. I'm just a slave. See, he's coming to a realization that he is lost. He is condemned and he is a slave to sin, sin, bound to it, unable to break the chains for himself. So he's not saying, I didn't do anything, it was all sin. What he's saying is, I thought I was in control and I found out that no, I'm not even in control in what I thought I was. Sin is controlling me. And by the way, who tempts with sin? Satan. And therefore, ultimately, Satan himself is the author of that control. 
He does not make us do anything, but he is the one that brings about the temptation and the sin. And a lost person bound to sin is responsible to sin. And they do nothing else but just follow in sinful, lustful ways. And Paul's saying, I'm realizing this about myself. I got to hurry very quickly. We got to wrap this up. This sec- he has the second honest personal assessment in verse number 18. He says, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me. I I really, really, really want to do right. Man, I want to do right. I want to be accepted of God. And I I want to live a life that earns me righteousness. For to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Why? Go back up to his first honest assessment. He says, for I am, I am carnal, sold under sin. He's saying, I'm, I'm really seeing myself. I'm, I'm really starting to understand what I am. Now, again, under, coming from the, the light and understanding, he's given his personal testimony where he was before he came to Christ. And so, he says that I, I, I would love to do this, just like all the other Jews, like all the other, all you scholars we're all, you're, right, you're working to earn God's favor. Your, your desire is to earn God's favor. But no matter what you do, you never feel like you can accomplish that, right? That's how I felt. To will is present. My desire is there. But how to perform that which is good, I'm finding I, I haven't got a clue. For there is none good, no, not one. Hmm. Verse number 19 and uh, verse number 20, the two of them also show the frustrating captivity of sin's control and guilt. It says, for the good, he just repeats to a degree, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. In other words, the things I, I would rather not do, but I do them anyways. It is no more I that do it. It's not me making the decision. It's not me controlling my life, but sin that dwelleth in me. I'm not in control. Sin's in control. Now, he's not saying I'm not guilty of doing these things. What he's saying is I am under guilt and I am, I am convicted of this guilt. I am burdened down with this guilt. But every bit of it just shows me that I'm not the one directing my life. Sin is leading my life. And I got a choice. He, he comes to the conclusion. And of course, up to this point, he's already been presenting it. You have a choice to make. Are you going to live a slave to sin? Or are you going to live a servant unto God? Which one are you going to be? And, and as a lost person, you have no choice but a slave to sin. Unless, of course, you surrender over and receive Christ as your Savior. Him plus nothing minus nothing. And through that, you are free from sin and made free to serve righteousness to serve the lord and so he just repeats that whole that struggle the things i wouldn't i do that which i do not that that he just goes back and forth it sounds confusing but it's not he's saying the things that i would not do i do the things that i want to do (laughs) i never end up doing them those things i know i should do i always go back on those things i know i shouldn't do it's what i always go for and he said sin is the one Sin is becoming exceeding sinful, and sin, according to my knowledge and understanding of it now, is I'm finding that sin is the one in control. I'm just 
a slave. Now, he makes his choices, but he's taken his leads from the sinful nature. So the last little bit, uh, verse 21 and 23, the, the inevitable, inevitable battle facing every individual. Uh, verse number 21 says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Paul's saying, listen, I, I really, I love to learn from God's word. I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Verse number 23, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. My mind, I want to serve God. My flesh, he's saying, and bringing me into, the, into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. This flesh, that which I desire from the inward man, wants God, and yet that which I am born with, this flesh, is always fighting against that which I know to be right now. And so he goes into verse number 24. Now here, here is the sinner's cry of despair. What does it come down to? Conviction, pushing, and bringing about the exceeding sinfulness, exceeding sinfulness, how you're burdened, you're a slave, how you're never going to break loose, you're chained up, there's no hope in what you can do for yourself, you can't break free of your own, you're, you're useless to yourself, you can't do, you've never been in control from the very beginning, how do you think you're going to control it now? And you, you can't, you can't, you can't, and so here it comes, all of this, and he's realizing how sinful he is, he's realizing how horrible it is, and he's realizing... My life is miserable. And verse number 24. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Very honest question. Sinners cry. Realizing all of a sudden what sin is. And all that sin now being exaggerated to the point where it's, oh my goodness, this is horrible. This is awful. There's no hope. I can't fix it. I want to, I want to, I want to, but I can't. There's nothing I can do because never, no matter what I try, I fail. By the way, no man can live according to every single law that God gave and earn forgiveness. No man, no matter how hard they want to, no matter how much they desire to, no man can accomplish forgiveness for themselves. And he comes to this point, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death because I can't do it? Who's going to free me from it? Verse number 25. Now, chapter 8 goes a lot deeper. So chapter 8 Starts giving a whole bunch of answers to Paul saying, you're doomed, you're doomed, we're all doomed. Look what I felt. Look how doomed I was. At chapter 8, he begins to give a lot of answers to that. We're going to get there later. But he gives a simple answer in verse number 25. A simple answer and a reminder. The simple answer is, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Done. I thank God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he explains that in greater, greater detail later. But he, is, he now goes back. What he's already dealt with in chapter 1 through chapter 6. 
he now has gone through his personal testimony revealing just how awful he reached a point of realizing how pathetic he was once he understood and really knew what sin was and he knew he couldn't do anything. All of a sudden, I'm a wretch and I can't help myself. Can anyone deliver me? And he came to the point where he is now broken and he is now ready and he is now searching and he's saying, is there any hope? And then he says, oh, by the way, that was my story. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's your answer. And then he reminds them, he says, so then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God. With the mind, I desire to serve my desire, my, my, my inner man, the inner being that, by the way, before was crowded and covered and, and corroded by sin the inner man was dead, and then yet through Christ, he's now been brought alive by the Spirit of God. And now I still have that desire that now has a fully charged battery to go with it to help me live out that desire of my mind of the inner man that I want to serve God. So I myself serve the law of God, okay? So with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but just keep in mind with the flesh, the law of sin. So where does any act as a child of God going to be possible uh, that the child of God could go against that which pleases their heavenly father? Where does it come from? Well, it's not from the inner man. It's going to come from the actions of the fleshly man that must be stomped down every single morning. It must be resisted. Why, why else did he say resist the devil and he will flee from you? You have to resist. You have to push back. If we do not, then this flesh will try to rise up. And though it cannot remove the spirit of God, it can do the best to with Satan's help and influence and sin's work in my life. If I'm not careful, it can try its best to at least just kind of choke out and hide under the bushel. That which God has brought to life. Can't remove it, but sure can try to pull the curtain over it. That battle of the flesh against the spirit is a constant warfare the child of God feels and fights. But in this passage, in this, this place right here, what was Paul really talking about? Ultimately, yes, he reminded about what the child of God can face even after salvation in the real struggle. But in this, he is ultimately saying, let me to all you intellectuals here, let me explain to you someone who was very versed in the law, someone who was a, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, someone who has as much intellectual background as you do, let me share with you my personal testimony of what happened when the law taught me what sin was. And all of a sudden, it became exceeding sinful. And that which did not bother me, now all of a sudden, it began to eat me alive. And it felt like I was dying every single day. It was killing me. It's kind of like that person who hears the truth and goes home and says, I'll deal with it later. And just day after day, it just eats at them. Eats at them. And that, that's the very thing that, that um, uh, Brother Jackson was, was talking about, praying, praying. Pray that that conviction, you could see conviction set in. Pray that that conviction begins to work and work and work to the point that that individual says, I can't handle it anymore. 
I was just fine until I knew about all this, and now I can't ever forget it. It's killing me. I have to either do something with it or it's going to wear me out. That's when Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So when you see it in the right viewpoint, you understand it makes perfect sense. He's describing what it's like for a lost person to come under great conviction to the point where they have to have a deliverance. Somebody's got to help. And then he said, by the way, I can tell you who it is that can help. Chapter 8, we'll get into that. But um, encouraging as a whole to see because if you ever witnessed to somebody and saw conviction fall and they waited and then you saw God just constantly prick at them, constantly work on them, and you saw how miserable and unhappy until they finally said, I surrender, I give up. You know what Paul was talking about. Conviction is very real. Conviction is very needed. It draws the sinner to repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you.